Good morning, everybody, uh, both those of you who are here in the room with us, as well as those joining online as well. Grateful to be with you in this way. Uh, before I kick off this new series, which is part two of a series of uh, series that we're going to be doing, let me just mention a couple other ways uh, for you to perhaps respond to the call of God in your life and also just to get more connected into this church. And the first one I want to talk about just for a minute is baptism. This is sneaking up on us a little bit. We're going to do another baptism service at the end of the month. And if you've been around here for a little while, you know these are just highlight weekends. Uh, on Friday, I had a, a friend, a woman from our church, email me, and she did not know I was going to be talking about baptism this weekend, but she completely unsolicited sent me a note and said, uh, among the things she shared with me, I'm still reveling in my baptism five and a half years ago. And she went on to testify a little bit about how significant an experience that was. She reminded me of a conversation I had with her right down here that I had forgotten about, but she just said it was a very significant day for me. She said, I'm still kind of living off of that experience and it's propelling me forward. This room is filled with uh, individuals who have followed in the footsteps of Jesus, responded to his challenge to be baptized ever since he himself was baptized by John. Uh, we have been following in that path of identifying with his death, burial, and resurrection. It's a deeply meaningful spiritual experience. It's an accelerant of faith, and it might be your next step. And if you've been thinking about this a little bit or you want to talk about it some more, as soon as we're done here today, uh, Pastor James, some of our leaders are going to be in the other side of this wall in the fireside room, and we're going to have a series of meetings after weekend services between now and the end of the month, the 24th, 25th, I think is the weekend. And if you want to talk to somebody about baptism, get some coaching, ask some questions, receive some answers, just kind of walk through some steps to determine if this is your next step. Why don't you consider sticking around just for a few minutes when we're done here today, and we can help you kind of make that decision uh, together. If that's your next step, please do that. The other invitation I want to make to you is to consider Alpha. Alpha starts this coming week on Thursday night. Alpha's been around for a while. It's been repackaged and retooled and really, really uh, sharply honed to create an environment where anybody and everybody can, around food and conversation, ask any question, debate matters of faith, talk about scripture, talk about Jesus, talk about the existence of God, why this matters. Just a great, safe place to explore. If that sounds at all interesting to you, would you consider joining our group for Alpha starting on Thursday night? Now, because there's a meal involved, we'd like to know you're coming. So if you go to our website, uh, there's a place to register for Alpha, and then we'll know to prepare for you, and why don't you consider joining us on Thursday night. So one more quick mention before I get into the weekend message. If you were not here last weekend or you don't subscribe to our digital newsletter, which goes out on Friday afternoons, you may be unaware that we shared some news, some information about a movement toward lead pastor succession. So if you're not caught up on that, again, go to our website. We've created a tab there. There's a succession page, upper right-hand corner. There's just a button that says su uh, succession. It's a hard word for me. Um, so if you want to go there and just kind of find out what you missed, there's links to the announcements from last weekend, the full version, the shortened version, some FAQs, some timelines, all kinds of stuff there to get informed. So if you don't know about that, uh, please go check that out if you would. Okay, let's talk about prayer. How's that for <laughs> just a jolt, just a quick shift? Yeah, we're going to do that abruptly. Almost every time I talk about prayer, 
or we do a teaching series on prayer. And I'm guessing I've probably taught more on this subject than, than anything else, not just in this church, but from the time I was a youth pastor in Southern California. Like I've talked about this uh, a ton. And every time I do, I am flooded with those same sort of thoughts about my formative experiences with prayer and my, my different evolutions on prayer. I've talked about some of this here before as well. Uh, as a kid, I remember being taught to pray by my parents. We were a family of faith, and my parents taught me a couple of prayers that were just part of our, our family culture. Now, admittedly, they were kind of shallow. They weren't really deep. Uh, we prayed some set prayers or pre-written prayers that were recited at bedtimes and at mealtimes. They were very different from those beautiful, robust Puritan prayers that we prayed a few minutes ago. The standard mealtime prayer for our family, maybe some of you prayed something like this. It was, come Lord Jesus, be our guest. May these gifts to us be blessed Amen. We would all recite that and then dive in. How many of you, you know, prayed prayers like that? Yeah, kind of those simple mealtime prayers. At bed, fine prayer, not exactly, you know, super thoughtful, especially if you just do it over and over again. Uh, at bedtime, my parents taught me to pray this prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Guide me through the starry nights and wake me when the sun shines bright. Amen. Remember that one, some of you? Yeah, a lot of, a little, nothing wrong with it, it's fine, just, you know, a little bit pithy, a little bit, you know, simplistic. As I got older, I was in my sleepover years when I began to be formed and, and shaped and, and challenged by one of my best friend's father. In my sleepover years, I spent a lot of nights at my friend Tim's house. And his father was a, a man of deep faith. I knew this. And it happened several times where I was having a sleepover at his house. We would sleep in sleeping bags in the family room. And I would be awakened to his father praying out loud at like four or five in the morning. And on one hand, it was a little bit, a little bit freaky to hear a voice of a, of a man, you know, kind of muffled in the next room, uh, praying out loud. Uh, it it kind of scared me a little bit. In the dark, you're kind of like, what is going on? But as I listened to him, I became kind of in, enthralled by what he was doing because I had never heard anybody pray like that before. So earnestly, so passionately. And I began to sense that he was experiencing something, some encounter with God through his spirit that I wasn't. And I started to want uh, some of that. As I went through my adolescence, my teenage years, I began to move away from those simple bedtime prayers, those set prayers, and I began to pray my own earnest prayers. Now, again, admittedly, mostly they were prayers about, you know, God, help me and help fix this, fix my nutty family, or, or make that girl like me. Or, like, those are the kind of prayers I prayed as a teenager. And as I moved into... Uh, young adulthood, that's when the doubts and the questions came. And I started to ask, you know, does prayer matter? Does it work? Does God really hear? Does God really respond? What do we deal with? Unanswered prayer? I, I, you know, all of that stuff. So fast forward to now, and I feel like even at my age now, I'm still learning, I'm still growing, I'm still discovering the mysterious and transformative nature of prayer. 
So I invite you, no matter where you are in your own journey with prayer, to enter into this and try to look at prayer with fresh eyes for the next few weeks. This is our second in our series that we're calling Sacred Practices. We're gonna do two of these a year for five years until we kind of work through 10 different spiritual uh, practices, time-tested uh, ways to grow our faith. And so back in the fall, you may recall that we spent a few weeks on Sabbath and Sabbath keeping. That was our focus in September. Now here in February, we're gonna spend the rest of this month talking about prayer. Last year, uh, our leadership core zeroed in on 10 spiritual practices that uh, Christ-following people have used for years, centuries really, to accelerate their faith. And so we're, we're going to talk over the next few years about Sabbath keeping, now prayer, uh, fasting, solitude, meditation on scripture, simplicity, community, generosity, and hospitality and service. And so we'll do two of these a year for five years. And then whenever we do this, we'll curate some uh, materials. Our friend Larie uh, helped us with this. We curated a set of resources for individuals and families and groups. If you'd like to take what we do here on the weekend and, and go next level with it, there's a, a resource sheet that gives you several options for families, individuals, and groups. Now, I know I mentioned our website like three times already, but one more time. There's a landing page for this series where you can pick up that resource sheet. Uh, the link was also included in Friday's newsletter. And if you can't, you know, kind of find it any other way, just uh, put into a browser, spac.ca slash prayer, and you'll see those resources right there for you. And I want to highlight, too, uh, just, to, just to give credit for some of this, uh, there's a man out of the UK, a pastor, a, a writer named Peter Gregg, Pete Gregg, and he's a very significant voice on this subject. Uh, he's the instigator of something called 24-7 Prayer. It's a movement which is spread across the globe, so you're going to see a lot of Pete Gregg stuff on our site. Another influential voice in all of this is John Mark Comer. Until recently, Comer was a pastor in the Portland area. He's recently relocated to Southern California. And now he devotes all of his time to resourcing individuals and churches on the subject of spiritual practices. And so his website is called practicingtheway.org. Our life groups are going to be using the Comer materials. And his teaching is certainly shaping some of the messages that you'll hear this month. Okay, let's get after it. And let's start with the obvious. Let me just put it out there, a lot of us struggle with prayer. Doesn't come easy for a lot of us. We maybe like the sound of it, but it doesn't come easy or naturally. And there may be good reasons for that. It seems like there's a lot working against our ability to quiet down, or slow down enough to engage in focused prayer. John Mark Comer thinks that we are living at one of the most difficult moments in human history to pray. And then he kind of gives some reasons for that. He considers the smartphone to be a death blow to prayer. Not sure if you've thought about it. Some of you are nodding already. Now, this might sound like a conspiracy theory. I'm not a conspiracy guy. But, but, this is the truth. At this very moment, even while we're in the room right now, multi-billion dollar tech companies and their employees who are very smart some of the brightest minds on the planet, they are aiming to distract you and addict you and monetize your attention and through it, modify your behavior. That's going on, whether you know it or not. Another problem is just kind of the way we're functioning with our smartphones. I'm uh, old enough to remember going to a store like Costco 
and getting into a long line and realizing, okay, I've got seven or eight minutes to stand here. I remember a day when people used to just stand there and wait their turn and not automatically pull out a device and start to scroll. Remember those days? Some of you don't know what that's like. Some of you digital natives, you don't know what it's like to stop at a red light and just wait your turn because without, you know, kind of looking down at your phone, it's just, there's just a different way we're functioning today. Moments of boredom used to be gifts to your spiritual life and now we kind of fill them constantly with input and with screens. Something else which makes prayer more difficult in our era, uh, our era is our general wealth. Now, uh, you might not think you're particularly wealthy, but we are the most prosperous generation in human history. It seems like there's always more people who have, you know, people that have more than you do. I realize that. But generally speaking, collectively, we are the wealthiest people in history. And money can do sometimes what prayer is intended to do, and sometimes even easier and faster. Another clever quote from Comer, he says, why pray for your daily bread when you can just door dash it, right? Like, why just, just go, call it up. And with more money and uh, all of the way we're living comes more activity and complexity, which all equals busyness. Busyness is a huge reason why so many people say, I just can't, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. Kind of hearkening back to where we were last fall in Sabbath, if you're too busy to pray, Maybe you're too busy. <laughs> we should just talk about that sometimes. And then science and technology in general, they're just pushing back against our efforts to pray. Uh, pray. Why pray when you can Google your questions into the internet? Why pray when you can dialogue with another human being? They're just a text or a FaceTime or a Zoom meeting away. Why ask God anything when you can just ask Siri, your watch, your phone, whatever. And finally, we are just living in an era where secularism and cynicism is just kind of in the oxygen right now. Even if we, we pray and we think we've heard something from God or we sense that he's responding to our prayers or meeting us in our prayers, culture around us is conditioning us to think, well, that's just something else. It's just chance or coincidence. So here's my point. If you struggle with prayer, if you find yourself already just, ah, I'm not sure about this, listen, you're in good company. You are absolutely not alone. But I, at least, and I would encourage you to try to adopt a similar posture, I'm not giving up on it. Prayer has been a life-giving, faith-shaping practice the means for human beings to experience the reality of life with God, the life that I think we all desire for decades, for centuries now. Prayer is a doorway. It's a portal. It's a pathway to the kind of faith and the kind of life that you probably desire. And so for a few weeks here, February 2024, we're going to focus on prayer. And as always is the case, whenever we talk about something like this, if you want to get some some thoughts, some, some, some good input on this subject. We turn to the person of Jesus Christ. That's where we're going to examine his experience with prayer. And biblically, what I want to show you is a few samples from the life of Jesus because it's Jesus who demonstrates what a prayerful life uh, looks like. He's the one who first engages in it consistently and regularly and I think invites us into something similar. Now, my primary text is going to be Luke chapter 11. 
But before we get there, let me show you how the gospel writer Luke sort of establishes a pattern for the way Jesus engages consistently in prayer. This is from Luke chapter 5. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sickness. This is the time when, when Jesus in his early ministry is attracting huge crowds. He says, Luke says, according to him, like he frequently withdrew. He got away to lonely places and he prayed. One translation says, as was his custom, or another translation says he frequently withdrew. The thought of Jesus himself going regularly to a solitary, distraction-free place to pray, I find that compelling. I find it a little convicting, but I find it very compelling. Prayerful withdrawal is part of Jesus' rhythm. Here's another example from Luke 6. One of those days, Jesus went to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. So Jesus gets out of the city, goes to a hilltop, another private place, and he prays all night. And the text goes on to describe what happens next. This is the night before Jesus picks his life group. He picks the group of people he will invest in uh, most significantly, these intimate friends who will become his closest friends and followers and apostles. One more from Luke chapter 9. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him. He's not alone this time. This time he takes a small group with him, his three good friends, and they went up to a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. This is Luke's description of the transfiguration. This is the day that Jesus is literally transfigured, transformed uh, as he prays on a mountain. And there's plenty more examples where these come from. Throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, Jesus consistently makes time for prayer, no matter how busy he is. Despite the pressing of the crowds and the stress that he's under, no matter how many people are clamoring around him, asking for help or healing, he's never too busy to get up and get away and go out and pray and commune with the Father. He'll stay up all night if he has to. He gets away from people and he goes out of the city to be alone with God. And there's nothing to indicate that this is a chore for Jesus, that this is a, a struggle, a, a, you know, a discipline, a sheer act of the will to kind of trudge out there. Jesus does not have to push himself to do this. It would appear that he does this because he wants to. He longs to, he desires to. So with these examples as our backdrop, as our context, now let's dip briefly into Luke chapter 11. The pattern continues as Luke describes the prayer habits of Jesus now for a fourth time. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. I don't know how many of these places Jesus has, but he's, he's got a lot of these little places here. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John, that's a reference to John the baptizer, just as John taught his disciples. I'm going to stop there. I'll come back and pick up the end of this verse here in a second. But this is fascinating to me, and it's fascinated others as well. Among all the requests the disciples make of Jesus, this is the only time that we have recorded them 
asking Jesus to teach them something so specific. I mean, think about this. These are the same individuals who see Jesus turn water into wine. They see him heal people from a variety of illnesses. These are the folks that are with him when Jesus feeds 5,000 people. They see him calm a raging storm, yet they never ask Jesus to teach them to do any of that. The only thing the disciples ever specifically ask to be taught is how to pray. It's like they sense the secret to his extraordinary outer life is somehow connected to his extraordinary inner life with the Father. And it's fascinating to think about the fact that these guys know how to pray. Like, they know how to pray. They know the mechanics. These first century Hebrew men, young men, would know how to pray. They would be taught from an early age to stop several times throughout the day and pray at appointed hours. They know how to pray. What they're asking is, Jesus, teach us to pray like you. We want, we want more than just our daily rote little prayers. We want something like what your experience, whatever it's going on for you, we want that. We're not getting what you seem to be experiencing. We want some of what you're getting. That is not a bad request, by the way. And so maybe the first and best way to apply any of this, if you do nothing else with these messages over the, the month of February, maybe would you just have the courage to pray a prayer like the one the, the disciples asked? Just the phrase, Jesus, teach me to pray. I mean that for real. Like, and I'm not suggesting you do that. Like, if you want to do it later, go for it. Tonight, tomorrow, whatever. But you'll probably forget if you're at all like me. Right now, in this moment, pray that prayer. Jesus, teach me to pray. Teach me to pray. Teach me to, to see this with fresh eyes. The sacred practice of prayer is about carving out time and focus to intentionally communicate and commune with God. And with the last few minutes I have with you, I want to give you a few thoughts on what to say to God, sort of how to pray, how to approach God, how to talk to God. Now, some of this will include the potential of, of praying some pre-written prayers, prayers written by others like the ones Jesse walked us through earlier. Uh, if any of you have been struggling to pray for you know, what's going on in the world, you know, Ukraine and, and Russia, that sort of thing, as one example, or Gaza or Palestine. Like, how do you even put into words there? Pete Gregg has got, if you Google Pete Gregg praying for Gaza and, and Israel, there's a beautiful prayer that just gives expression to probably what you're feeling in your heart. But sometimes these written prayers, these set prayers can be super, super helpful. The Psalms are phenomenal to pray out loud. The prayers of Jesus, pray scripture. There's lots that's been written by spiritual mothers and fathers that we can access. So that's certainly part of the application here. Next weekend, part two, we're gonna talk more about expressing our own words and our own thoughts, bold prayers of, of expectation. Talking with God will be part two. The third message will be about listening to God, how to discern when God may be speaking. And then in the last uh, message, we'll de-emphasize the, the words and the, the constant chatter, and we'll talk a little bit about what it means to just be in the presence of God, being with God. But for a few more minutes, just a little bit more on what to say 
As we get into Luke chapter 11, what I want to do now is connect what's on the end, the tail end of what's on screen right now. I want you to notice something about what happens here. When the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to pray in this version of the Lord's Prayer that's coming, Luke quotes Jesus as saying, when you pray, say. And what comes next is Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. Or if you grew up Roman Catholic, maybe the Our Fathers. There's two versions of the Lord's Prayer in the New Testament. There's the one in Matthew, which is a little bit longer, and there's the one that's coming here in a second in, in Luke. And both can be recited. They can be prayed literally. We also consider them to be sort of a pattern for prayer. Both versions of the Lord's Prayer are packed with theology. At first, Matthew's version seems a little bit more theological. It's longer. Pastor Brody taught this uh, last fall in our Deeply Rooted series, the one in Matthew, and he definitely taught it appropriately and with superb uh, skill. He taught it theologically, as, uh, as in contained in Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer is a set of assumptions. It's a framework for a well-rounded prayer. Luke's version is shorter. It holds some of the same theological assumptions, but it seems unique in the way that it also carries this challenge to pray it as a pre-written or set prayer because the translation that you see in the NIV in Luke is, when you pray, say this. When you pray, say it. Say what? Say first, verse two, Father. I'm just gonna walk you through the first three verses here. And then we'll go to the table. The first thing Jesus says we should say is Father. What Jesus, I think, is poking at here is how we approach God in prayer. In Aramaic, the language Jesus likely spoke, the word is Abba, or Father, Daddy. It's a term of affection. It's what a son or daughter calls their father when they're speaking lovingly. Now, this is really interesting. Prior to this moment to address God this way, unheard of. Probably considered crazy talk or blasphemy. So an old scholar named Joachim uh, Jeremias. He was a German Lutheran scholar. And he said, before this, there is not a single example of the use of Abba as an address for God in the whole of Jewish literature. This is a new thing Jesus is, is doing here. He's perhaps the first one ever in recorded history to address God as Papa, as Abba, as Father. This is how Jesus speaks to the Father. And this is how he encourages his disciples to approach God the Father, to think of him as the fatherly, loving fatherly figure and to talk to him. Now, I realize uh, whenever we're talking about this, um, relating to God as Father, I gotta acknowledge what some of you are thinking, um, which is this is tough for me because your experience of your earthly father is not a good one. And that means what we're talking about here in these moments can be a painful thing and can actually push you away a little bit, especially if your father was indifferent to you or abandoned you, or God forbid, abused you, some of you are gonna find the concept of relating to God as Father with tenderness, you're gonna find that really difficult to think, you know, Papa, Father, Abba here. 
that's some of my challenge because my experience with my earthly father was, was not that great. So I've got to work my way through this a little bit. One of the ways I've done this with my spiritual director is to respond to one of the questions that he has asked me several times in all the years we've worked together. Morris will ask me, imagine God thinking about you. What do you think he thinks? And then he goes on to say, if you think God is mad at you or disappointed in you, that may not be God because the prevailing posture toward you is love. This is Morris to me. The voice of God is a non-condemning voice. He reminds me of that all the time. Uh, some of you have some work to do on this. I'm still working at it myself. The point is Jesus is encouraging us to come before him with a tender spirit because I think he knows because we are profoundly shaped by whatever we perceive the Father to be like. And it's going to affect the way we pray. If your sense of God is that he's an angry tyrant, well, that's going to shape your experience of him. It's going to affect the way you pray to him. If your experience with God is that he's a, you know, kind of a doddering softy who agrees with everything you say and think and do, well, that's going to shape your prayers too. Uh, either extreme requires some divine image management work. I got to keep this moving, but just one more time, let me just emphasize this. Throughout the scriptures, the baseline emotional disposition of God is that of compassion. Yes, there are scriptures that portray God as angry. We have the wrath of God that we've got to deal with in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. But if this helps just a little bit, uh, the wrath or anger of God is like that of a good parent who loves their child unconditionally and emotionally while being profoundly saddened whenever they see their child making destructive choices. So whenever, if ever, you can find a quiet place and call out to God. Call out to him as father. You are speaking to a compassionate, loving father who looks at you with hospitality and affection and what pours out of him through Jesus by the Holy Spirit into the depths of who you are is his love and his grace. This is the best starting place for prayer. The God that you pray to is a loving father. And as you enter into his presence, remember, the primary objective of prayer, and teenage me did not understand this, the primary objective of prayer, the primary goal of prayer is to enjoy God's company. Here's why I say that. Here's how the Lord's Prayer continues in Luke 2. Father, hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed... Uh, or hallow, uh, is not a word I hear very often anymore. I'm not sure I've used it in years and years and years. It's an unfamiliar word. It's, think of it as the verb form of the word holy. It means revere or venerate, respect or set apart. It's special. Biblically, holy is less about a moral condition. Uh, more often it means special, unique, beautiful. That's the best way to look at it. So when Jesus teaches his disciples to refer to the Father as holy, what he means is there's no other being in reality as beautiful, as special, as unique as the Trinitarian community of love, joy, and peace that's all wrapped up in the simple moniker God. Timothy Keller is one of my pastoral heroes. 
I've quoted him a few times over the years. He's passed away now, so he's the late Timothy Keller, but he writes a lot on this subject. This is a little bit of a lengthy quote, but just soak this in. To hollow God's name is to have a heart of grateful joy toward God. And even more, a wondrous sense of his beauty. Consider how different this is from the normal way we think of prayer as a way to get things. We may believe in God, but our deepest hopes and happiness resides in things, as in how successful we are or our social relationships. We therefore pray mainly when our career or finances are in trouble or when some relationship or social status is in jeopardy. When life is going smoothly, our truest heart treasures seem safe. It doesn't really occur to us to pray. Seldom. Or never do we suspend, uh, spend sustained time adoring and praising God. We know God is there, but we tend to see him as a means through which we get things in order to make us happy. For most of us, he has not become our happiness. For most of us, he has not become our happiness. Now, don't hear that or receive that with a sense of guilt or shame. Hear it as an invitation to experience to experience God in a way that most of you maybe never have. And honestly, I, I think I've only experienced a taste of this myself. But some of my best tastes have come in prayer. Moments when I've managed to be still enough and quiet enough to sort of shout down or push down the competing voices and noises until God's presence, Father, Son, and Spirit are felt in a way that's palpable and profound. There is no way I can adequately describe the feeling of being caught up in the love and the joy and affection of that which takes place between God the Father, the Son, and Spirit. It's remarkable and it's transforming. But it takes focus, it takes time, it takes intentionality. And last thought, and then we'll go to the table. The last idea from just the little bit of the version of the Lord's Prayer in Luke that we're going to look at this weekend seems to indicate that somehow, in a way we'll never fully understand, prayer works or prayer matters. Consider the next line from Luke 3 now. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Uh, we say this often. I love our big giant Bible here. Uh, a device or a, a, an actual Bible is where you'll see things that we won't possibly be able to include here. But if you were looking at this in an actual Bible or maybe even in a device, you should see a footnote after this verse uh, and, and just like there's footnotes that kind of refer to other parts of the scriptures in, in the Lord's Prayer here, uh, in this case, there's a footnote which makes it sort of sound more like Matthew's version, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the footnote that goes with your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what other manuscripts will, will show. Jesus, here's the point, is apparently saying that his kingdom has not come yet, at least not fully, his will is not being done yet, at least not fully. And this part of the prayer seems to be an indication that in prayer, we somehow are partnering with Jesus. 
This is a Comer quote again, to bend reality in the direction of our Father's good intentions. Love that line. In prayer, we are bending reality in the direction of our Father's good intentions. Again, there's so much mystery around this subject. There's no way I'm going to be able to convince you in the last couple of minutes here that prayer works or it matters or makes a difference. We'll talk more about that next weekend. But I will just acknowledge that I'm concerned about a certain sort of fatalism that has permeated Western Christianity. I mean, this is even something that creeps into my story a little bit because it's really easy in 2024 to explain things away uh, or make excuses for God or render him impotent or even start to believe that he has no concern or regard for my prayers. It really doesn't matter. Uh, A perspective like that makes prayer psychologically impossible and it leads to it becoming like a dead ritual. So when you pray, come before your heavenly Father, Abba Father, who loves you and wants to partner with you to make the world that is more like God intended for it to be. There's so much more to be said about the Lord's Prayer, but that's the time that we have for this weekend. And I hope at least kind of just whetted your appetite a little bit and maybe you'll leave here thinking a little bit differently or maybe with some fresh eyes and ears about how Jesus' framework for prayer is so different from ours. A lot of us are conditioned to view God as a grumpy old man and who wants to pray to a grumpy old man, an angry dude? No, according to Jesus, God is a loving, non-condemning father who just says, come, let's go, let's talk. Most of the time we think of prayer as a way to simply get things from God. According to Jesus, Prayer is an invitation to delight in God himself. And if you're tempted to think of prayer fatalistically or cynically questioning whether it matters or it works, according to Jesus, admittedly, this is a great mystery, but our prayers matter. They make a difference. They're an opportunity to partner with God in what he's seeking to do. So give it a fresh start, would you? Would you look at the resources? Would you kind of play with some of what you've Uh, been presented there and just see what God does through this sacred practice. You've got nothing to lose and potentially a powerful experience of God's presence in store for you. Let's pray together as we move to the table. Heavenly Father, moments now as we transition to this great sacred ritual of breaking bread, drinking wine, juice, to acknowledge your sacrifice. God, I pray for another unmistakable sense of your presence in these holy moments. God, what our prayerful um, yearnings for you, our worship of you in this way, be met with a keen awareness of your presence as we come before you. In your name we pray. Amen. Invite our servers, if you'd come and take your places here at the front as well as at the back in a moment or two here, I'll invite you to get up from your seats if you're able and make your way to one of the communion stations. Again, back or front, uh, should be gluten-free at a couple of different places if that's helpful to you. The table is another sacred practice designed to help us connect back to the moment that Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room 
It's another powerful theology lesson where Jesus explains first to his early disciples what's about to take place, how he will take upon himself the effect of the world's sin, and that will open up a pathway to reconciliation between humanity and God. He urged them at that time, and now us, to celebrate this simple meal regularly to express our heartfelt worship prayerfully, express our gratitude as we remember our Savior. So if you follow Jesus, if you consider him Lord, this meal is for you. Again, just get up if you would at some point, grab the elements, return to your seats, and once everybody's been served, I'll come back and we'll take the elements together and I'll lead you through the celebration of the Lord's table. Come as you're ready. Jesus was with his disciples in that upper room. They were having a Passover meal, and in the middle of that meal, Jesus broke from tradition, and he reframed everything. And he held up a piece of bread, and he said, this is my body, which will be broken for you. I don't know if he said it this way. I don't know if he said, this is going to make more sense in a few hours, but we're on the other side of crucifixion and resurrection, and now we know that the body broken for you 
is what opened up that pathway. And so Jesus said, whenever you eat this bread into the future, do this in a way that acknowledges my making a way and reconciling humanity with God. And so take and eat the body of Christ broken for you. then Jesus doubled down on the symbolism by holding up a cup, saying this cup represents my blood shed for you, shed for the forgiveness of sins. This seals the deal, he said. And now into the future, whenever you eat this meal again, celebrate my broken body, my shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. Let's remember our Savior together. you stand with me and we'll close in prayer. As we conclude, uh, some of our prayer team will be at the front here. Um, the text to prayer line is always open, uh, but we also have live individuals who are trained and equipped and would be delighted to pray for you. So look for the folks at the lanyards. Let them bless you. Let them care for you. Let them love you and let them lift you up uh, in prayer today. If we can serve you in that way, please do that. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this invitation to life with you, to delight in you. Thank you for the worship that's been experienced here in this room, for the reorienting nature of a gathering like this. I pray, God, that as we move into this week now, we would do that in a way that allows us to respond to your invitation to do life in community and connection with you. Help us to quiet ourselves to encounter you in some new ways in these next few days. So bless our church as we take this journey together. God bless and keep your good people. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you, everybody.